Welcome to turn there if you'd like. It's going to be Psalm 139, verses 11 through 18, but you certainly don't have to turn there. You can just listen to the words read. The psalmist writes, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost, uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am reverently set apart. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake. And I am still with you. Thanks, Jess. <clears throat> so, we've been talking about this idea of a committed life, um, a committed life of joy, a committed life that comes through not just the self-knowledge, but the knowledge that God has of, has of us, right? And um, when we talk about commitment, we talk about commitment to certain things, to... Um, to things like relationships, to causes, to, um, to kingdom, uh, but also to things like vocation. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This, what does it look like to be ones who are committed to a vocation? You know, David Brooks in the book, The Second Mountain, which we've referenced several times throughout the series, right? He describes George Orwell and his discovery of something I think that we're all after, right? Something that maybe, um, um, maybe you right now are after. Maybe you have been after, or at some point you will be after in your life. In fact, you know, it's, it's funny to think about. Christ City Church has been around for almost 10 years, as, as small as our little faith family is, as, as tight as it is. There's been about 500 people over those 10 years who have come through Christ City. Some have, have moved to other parts of the city. Some have moved to other parts of the, the, the nation and the world. Um, but we have, in our collective history, about 500 men and women who have come and been a part of our faith family. And almost all of them, at some point in their time with Christ City, have found themselves wondering, for what reason are they existing? <laughs> what is the thing that sets them apart? What is the thing that they're after? They come and find themselves at a point of transition. Maybe the question pops up because they're, they're uh, unhappy with their job, or maybe it pops up just circumstantially. They start to have more kids, or they um, meet somebody that they want to marry, or just have a... Um, uh, an unsettledness in their hearts and their souls for something more. All of us feel that. All of us have gone through that. Every human does. And some humans actually discover kind of what that thing is, what that purpose in particular is, what that set-apartness, as Chaz just read first from Psalms, really is, what they are made for and what their souls long to know well. But like all wondrous discoveries, um, um, any humans, especially Orwell's, comes not just through um, some sort of little test that you take online or through a few moments of contemplation, um, but comes through time and effort, through wanting and wondering. But at some point, 
Our hope is to get where Orwell got. And this is what Brooks says. This is where Brooks says that he got. He said, when Orwell turned from this physical and internal journey of discovery, when he had come through this time, and it was an extended time. It wasn't a quick time. It wasn't a short time. It was a, a time of rediscovering really what he was meant to be. He was transformed. He had experienced his call within a call. That purifying moment when you know why you were put on this earth and you are ruthless about pursuing the mission. Upon Orwell's unearthing, a friend remarked of, of him, it was almost as if there had been a kind of fire smoldering in him all his life, which suddenly broke into flame. He And listen to how this, this unearthing discovery, this call to something within a call, this vocation is described. Orwell, um, Brooks says that Orwell became angry at any injustice and yet coolly passionate. He was outraged by lies, but kindly toward people. He was fully engaged in fighting fascism, but always detached enough to be able to face the unpleasant truths about his own side. In a word, Orwell's discovery led him to meekness, to being one who's meek. Led him through the same passions that we discovered in Psalm 139. Remember, the, when we discover who we are, we go and we're against everything that's evil, against everything that's broken, against everything that's against what we're for. And yet, there's more. Now, meek might not be the word that you'd expect for the maturation of a per person and their purpose in real daily life, but meek, because meek for most of us, if you think about it, probably the word meek means, or at least it carries an image of weakness to you, right? A meek person maybe is someone you think of as like super gentle. And as a super gentle person, a gentle-hearted person, um, uh, something that's almost frail in its gentleness, you tend to think of someone who's being pushed around, stepped over, maybe stepped on. Not necessarily someone who's confident, collected, and committed to something, right? Yet meekness in its historical connotation means acting within the world with a sober sense of reality, identity, and purpose. Our idea of meekness is not the actual historical idea of meekness. To be one who is meek is to act in the world with a sober sense of reality, identity, and purpose. The idea of meekness historically is described as a prudent marriage of emotion and action. It's not haughty or detached, but at the same time not timid or standoffish, but rather fully committed, wholeheartedly engaged with the world around it. For example, here is how Aristotle described the word the idea of someone being gentle or meek. Aristotle said, Now we praise a man who feels anger on the right grounds and against the right persons and is also in the right manner and at the right moment for the right length of time. Kind of sounds like Orwell, the way Orwell is described, right? He says, The gentle person, may be, he may be called gentle-tempered or meek if we take meekness to be a praiseworthy quality. For meek really denotes a calm temper, not led by emotion, but becoming angry, and the idea of anger there is becoming impassioned, becoming full of vigor, becoming full of energy and life. In such a manner, for such a cause, and for such a length of time as principle may ordain. But listen to what, what Aristotle says. Although, the quality is thought rather to err on the side of defect, since the meek man is not prompt to seek redress for injuries, to seek vengeance but rather inclined to forgive them. 
The irony is the meek man is the one who stands, who's full of vigor and passion, anger at the right things for the right causes, for the right length of time as principle, as he's something that he's committed to ordains, as something more than him ordains. And yet he's one who, rather than taking vengeance, is able to forgive. The meek engage the world with the clear sight of what is actually good, true, and beautiful. They're moved into action for such causes and such manners as principle ordains. They don't just jump at everything. They don't just jump into everything. They're not just super excited about everything. They're not just super angry about everything. They're not super moved in everything. They don't put all their energy into the next thing that comes around, but are moved into it when it is truly good, truly true, truly beautiful. But they don't just see the world clearly in what is actually good, true, and beautiful, but they also see clearly what role they play in both the cultivation of such things and their own contribution to the decline of such things. They know that they can cultivate good, true, and beautiful things, but they also have in their own mind and tendency and in their own lack of clarity at times or lack of of soberness at times or just their own lack of just being divine, an ability to also pull away from what is good, true, and beautiful and create things that are off. They know, like the psalmist in Psalm 139, that there might be grievous ways in them and are willing to live in that tension. Meek persons contend, contended Jesus in step with the psalmist are the ones who inherit the earth. Did you ever think that was strange? Jesus in the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the meek, already happy, full, whole are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Roy read for us just a few minutes ago that the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The meek take possession of the soil is what the little translation of inherit the land is. The meek take possession of the soil and become the people of the land. No longer wonders, but ones who have, at the core of their soul, needed and wanted to be settled and permanently at home. Permanently at home in their time, in their place, in the history, in the kingdom. Permanently at home in themselves and with the Lord. And in their inherited, that is, passed down, passed on place in the world, they pour out their love, their care, their skill, their work, in particular places and ways, and not just in general ways, into general effects. The meek are at home in themselves and in the world because they are at home in God. Hasn't that what Psalm 139 taught us? Those who are able to live both with a passion, to move into action with passion and zeal and vigor, led into it soberly. Understanding that, that what they've been made for is something more than themselves. And at the same time, recognizing they contribute but can also in ways do harm. So they walk forward with a sober-mindedness, but also a humility. That they are at home in who they are, not trying to figure out who they are anymore, but know who they are because God knows them. Because God has, as the psalmist has said in Psalm 139, has formed their inward parts, has made them, knitted them together in the depths of the earth, woven them together in the secret places. The prayer of examine leads us to find our lives holy and exhaustively, lived in the knowledge and desire and love of God. Hopefully that's what we've discovered over the last couple of months. I mean, that's why we pray the psalm, Psalm 139 regularly. That's why we enter into the examine. 
that we, we not only pray it that we, so that we know it, but that we can, like the psalmist, say, I'm awake and I'm still with you. That our very being in this moment right now is with God. That he's with us. That we're in the knowledge of God. God's knowledge of us and who we truly are. Indeed, the meek have come to see that they are awake and still with God, dwelling in the harmony of place and purpose, delighting in the abundance of peace, living righteously, rightly with God and his created beings and things, including themselves. Isn't that what we're all after to some degree, right? To live rightly with God, with our, one another, with our world, with ourselves? Listen, that's why Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Whole and happy are the meek. For, life on, for their life on earth is a, a life on earth in which they walk in the thing they were made to be and walk in. They were, they were the life on earth is what Genesis 1 and 2 was meant to be. Life in the promised land of God's peaceful, equitable, and just dwelling. Isn't that what Genesis 1 and 2 paints a picture for us? I know you all know the story of Genesis 1 and 2, right? In the beginning, God created, and when God created, he created man and woman to to be in relationship with him for the purpose of being in relationship to the earth, a place in which there was peace and equability, there was just dwelling. A recreated order now, Jesus says, extends across the entire earth under the cultivating care of his children who are in that same union, like the psalmist. I awake and I'm still with you. The ones who know what he knows, wills what he wills, and loves what he loves. The meek are meshed in the very first vocation given to us in our humanity. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish, the birds, and every living thing that moves. That we are meant to play a part in the cultivating of the goodness of the world. That's what all of our first vocation is. We're all called to that. Every one of us are called to cultivate the goodness of the world, to take responsibility for where we are, the places we are, and the things that live within those places. It's a call that wasn't just given before sin entered the world, but a call that was repeated even after sin divided humanity from God, from earth, and from one another. In Genesis 9, God says to Noah, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He repeats the same call and vocation. Those who inherit the harmony of place and purpose trust in God's unique creativeness. His reverent forming, knitting and weaving, as the psalmist described, in persons and things. And seek to do good in respect to how they relate to and work with God's design intentions. The meek, they inherit the harmony of place. They, they recognize that not just they are reverently made, but everyone's reverently made. And that God has reverently made everything to work in a certain way for his good intentions and good designs, and they submit to that, commit to being a part of ones who work towards that same thing. They, as, as um, Rory read for us in her psalm, befriend faithfulness. They feed on faithfulness. They find pasture, a good place to dwell, a safe place to dwell and living rightly with God and others is God's design. But listen, doing so doesn't always produce the quickest results. 
nor the riches. I mean, there's a reason Psalm 37 that Roy read for us said, wait on the Lord. Um, the reason that the psalmist encouraged us not to, uh, to, to look around at everything else that seems to be going well and fret. Because the way that we're going about it doesn't bring it in the time and in the abundance, the immediate abundance that we expect. Yet, delight in God's good creativeness leads to the fulfillment of our unique creation. When we commit to being a part of cultivating the good of the world, the good, what is good for those around us and who's in the place that we live, it, it leads to the fulfillment of our unique creation. How God has uniquely shaped and purposed you in the deepest desires of your heart. Wisely, the meek find their place and purpose within God's creation in righteous relationship with the persons and things God created them to live with. This meekness, this submission to God's determination of good and just does not manifest in timidity, but in weighed action, a balanced and appropriate response to the world around us as principle ordains, is what we've committed to ordains. The examine, Psalm 139, helps us to live meekly in our vocation. That's why we pray. Search me, O God, and know me. Examine me. Know my disquieting thoughts, the things that get me passionate and angry, the things that get me moving into the world. See if there be any grievous way within me and lead me in your way, ancient and everlasting. In the end, the prayer of examine leads us to live meekly, to live into the fullness of our vocation, of what we are created to be, what we are created to do, to bring about good, to be about cultivating the good in the world in which we exist. But there's more, right? You're like, that's like... We're not satisfied with that kind of general idea of calling and vocation, are we? Like, we, we all want to know more, don't we? Listen, we want to know not just what the general call that we have, but the specific call that we have, right? Listen, the word vocation, uh, is a, it comes from the Latin term uh, vocare, and it means to call. And it means the work a person is called to by God. That's simply what vocation means. The work that you are called to by God. Each of us contends Thomas Merton has some kind of vocation. We are all called by God to share in his life and his kingdom. Like that, that I think we get, right? Most of us. I don't know everybody super well, but I know most of us. I know most of us like, yes, I'm called to God's kingdom. I want to be a part of creating the good, about cultivating good, right? But the thing that we all seek in life is not simply... Um, a thing that is not just a happiness, but an intensity that reaches into our core. The thing that we're really after is more like Orwell's call within a call. It's yes, we're all called to the kingdom. And we need to know what that call is, that call to cultivate good. But what is it more? We want to know what, what is specific. We want to know um, what in, in perfect union of God's will and his knowledge and his love what we are, what are the particulars of our frame made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth? The specifics of what we have been reverently set apart for. The details of the days formed for us, which we were set apart for holy service and truth, and God's truth, the truth of life. We want to know those, don't we? Isn't that all, what all of us are after? Again, 10 years into Christ City, I can, I, can, I can tell you, I've had almost a thousand conversations around this, these ideas. 
that we're looking for at some level the particulars of how we've been made, the specifics of why we're set apart and for what, the details of what God is doing now in the days formed for us, the holy service that we give our life to that is true. And listen, vocation is a discovery of both who I am and what I'm for, but it's a discovery in the concrete world, the soil of daily life. God's world in which we breathe, live and breathe and move and have our being in grocery stores, on roadways, in office buildings, through parenting and marriage, friendship and community, work and play. And so let me clarify this, because I think it's helpful. Because I think when we think about vocation, sometimes we think about vocation uh, with a few misconceptions. Vocation is not necessarily a career or a craft. How many of you, when I started talking about vocation, thought automatically, like, we're talking about your job? Cool. I mean, it's normal. Or maybe it's like a skill set, right? Like a, a craft that you're good at. You may or may not get paid to do what you were called to do. That's not the way the Bible talks about it. It doesn't talk about your calling in the sense of what your career is. Again, some people's career and vocation mold together, meld together, and they become the same thing. But not for all of us. There are those in this room who I'm not going to call out and point out, but that what they do for a living is probably not what they're called to do. That doesn't mean that they give up their, what they do for a living. It just means they work out their call in a different place. That, that Their call it has forms a different part of their life and schedule and rhythm. And that's okay. Vocation, a call within a call, doesn't just mean it's the thing you get paid for and therefore you spend 40 hours a week doing. It can. Don't hear me wrong. Like It can it can be something like that. It just isn't necessarily something like that. It's not always something we get paid for, though sometimes we do. But vocation isn't, also, isn't either simply something we're good at doing, a talent or a skill. It's not just like, what am I good at? How many of you have taken career, maybe labeled vocation-like tests, when it's all about what are you good at? I mean, I don't know about you, but like in all my, my, my programs that I've been a part of in history, almost every gift in this thing that I've ever done, maybe it's even spiritual gifts, maybe it's not even vocation, right? Like we take tests to learn what, and like we take, the way the tests work, it's like it's trying to figure out what you're skilled at, what you're good at, what you do with effectiveness. Vocation doesn't necessarily mean that you're, that it's the thing that you're most effective at. Just think about who God called and what he called them to in the story of Scripture and how many of them were actually did something that they were actually really good at. Maybe for parts and little pieces of their story, but that had nothing to do with their call, did it? Very little. Again, it, you may, your vocation may be something you're really good at. There are a few stories in Scriptures of people doing things that they are really meant and made to do, like physically able to do because they're really skilled at it. But your calling may or may not be something that you're good at. And your calling may not be something that is immediately nobly distinguished. Though it's always for the good. Remember? Where it's a call within a call. Your first call is to the good. It's always for the good. But your call within a call might not look like some grand noble calling. Something that culturally is labeled as something grand and noble, right? Whether that culture be our society or that culture be the church culture or that culture be your family culture, it may not look like that. It can, but we know that it's going to be for the good, even if it's not immediately noble. 
When we talk about vocation, what we're trying to actually describe is this, is some activity or some injustice, some problem or some place or some people whom have called to, that call to your deepest level of your nature, down into the substrate, into the secret places that God's woven and designed. And in that, when something, whether it be an activity, an injustice, a problem, a place, a person, when something in those hits at your substrate, it demands an act, active response. You can't not do something about it. You can't not jump in wholeheartedly into it with a full commitment. Frederick Buckner, I think, describes it super well for us this way. He says, the kind of work God usually calls you to is the kind of work that, A, that you need most to do. You need most to do. You need to do this thing. Again, you may not get paid for it. You may not need it to make a living, but you need to do it or you don't feel whole, complete, or you feel less, right? You feel empty. You feel like you're not contributing. You feel whatever. You need to do it. And B, that the world needs, the world most needs to have done. So it's not just about you. It's about the place where you find yourself. The same thing as our first call, right? To cultivate the good in the immediate context in which we're in. A, the call to vocation is never just about what you need. It's about what is needed at the moment you exist. Because remember, God formed all the days of our lives, right, in his life. He wrote them all down before even one was, was made. So that means right now, here, God has made you for the good, for contributing to the good of something, has called you to a need that exists right here, right now, in this church family, in this community, at this time and place, in your, in your place, wherever it might be. Listen, Buckner gives a, a kind of a helpful example to kind of help us think through this. Um, he says, if you really get a kick out of your work, you're presumably meet requirement A, right? If you really get a kick out of what you do, and like, again, he's, he's going to um, kind of use an example that's a little more like our work, like, like paid job kind of deal, but I think it's helpful. He says, um, if you get a kick out of work, you might fulfill, you know, um, requirement A, that you're doing what you need to do most. But if your work is writing cigarette ads, chances are you've missed requirement B. Like, right? Like, if, you're, if, if the thing that you want to do leads you to doing something that doesn't make good, make for the good, help cultivate the good, then maybe that's not a vocation. Maybe that's not exactly what you're called to. On the other hand, says Buckner, if, you work, if your work is being a doctor in a leper colony, which we would all say is pretty noble, Right? I actually had an aunt and uncle who that was their deal. Like, they were pretty noble people. Um, um, uh, they were doctors in leper colonies. You probably meet requirement B. You're meeting the world's need, right? But if most of the time you're bored and depressed by it, the chances are you have not by, you have only bypassed A. You're not only bypassed A. You're not only are doing something that, you're, that you don't need to do, but you probably aren't helping your patients much either. So maybe the thing that we're doing is really, on the surface level, super good and righteous. But at the soul level, isn't the thing that we're made for. And so therefore, we're doing something that's good in a grievous way. In a way that doesn't actually contribute to the good. To our good, or to the good of those around us. And only does so kind of by accident, actually by providence, right? By God's grace. Just by grace. 
And listen, we, we live on grace, so that's a good thing. But there's more than grace. God wants us to live abundantly, not just, just on the, the leftovers, right? Not on just enough. Buckner contends, he says, neither the hair shirt, if you know what the hair shirt is, like in, um, uh, in some uh, religious traditions, like this kind of doing something that's, that seems to be good to make yourself like feel something painful so that you remember like almost like a self-beating up, right? How many of us have kind of done things that we thought were good and it's more into it feels like a self-beating up? Neither that, neither a hair shirt nor a soft birth. Not, not just doing the easy thing because that's probably not where most of us go. Some of it, most of us don't go into just doing hard things because we think we need to do hard things because they're good. Most of us go like, well, let's do the easy thing. Because that's what I'm made for, right? I'm made for, I'm, if, if it's easy, I'm made for it. But that's not true either, right? Like that's not necessarily true because that may not be for any good. He said, the place God calls you to is where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I think that, maybe we don't have a slide for that one. But where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. So when we talk about vocation, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about you, but we're not talking only about you. We're talking about you in the context of what God is doing in this particular place, the needs that exist, and how God has made you to be a part of that, of answering those things, of responding to those things. So it is you, but it's you wrapped up in something, right? Something more, which we've been talking about for months. So vocation is not necessarily a career, a craft, a talent, or skill, or nobly distinguished, but vocation is usually unearthed through a reawakening of inspiration through a reawakening of inspiration, through taking on responsibility and through getting to the depths of our desires. Brooks describes the unearthing of vocation as the moment when something sparks your interest or casts a spell on you or arouses a desire. Something delights you and you are forever after entranced by this fascinating thing. He labels these discoveries as enunciation moments. And he says that most of us have had these multiple times in our life. Like that most of us, if we think about it, can remember moments where something, again, sparked our interest, cast a spell on us, aroused us, delighted us in such a way that we're forever entranced by that thing. We keep coming back to that thing over and over and over again in our lives. Books found that when you hear adults talk about these enunciation moments, they often tell stories of something lost and something found. That they, that they, again, kind of like Orwell, that there was something inside them that just hadn't got to, that was like always burning and sizzling and it finally got re-sparked. Something that, um, that often these intimation moments happen in adulthood, they can still be traced back to something in their past. Maybe many times in their past. And even to something more rooted or inherited. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the meek for they inherit the land something inherited to something in their specifically designed and crafted past, to a grandparent, to um, some ancient seed that first blossomed when they were young. There's this thing that has been passed on to them when we discover this idea of vocation. And so a part of the way we unearth our vocation is we reawaken the things that interest us. Again, not the things that just kind of spark and stay on the surface and then go away in a moment, and move like a Netflix screen just to the next thing, right? But the things that historically have awakened us. When we take time to remember, we 
that as we look back on what we've kind of walked forward into, and the way we do this as a faith family is a few years ago, one of our, one of our family members designed this thing called a giftedness um, discovery. Anybody? I know some people in the room have gone through it. You can actually find it on our website. It's actually on the, the resource page for this current series as well as on some other places. Um, like We've actually kind of thought about this as a faith family and said, hey, how do we help each other remember? Not remember what we're good at, but remember what motivates us. Not just what we're good at and our skills, but really what sparks our interest. What is God calling us into? We, we designed this to be done in community, so it's not a test that you can take at home. If you go to the page, you actually have to sign up. It sends an email, and it says, hey, I'd like to organize this. And then it gives you the resources for how to organize this with like four to six other people. Because one of the things that we, one of the ways we discover even what God's calling us to is we can't discover it in isolation. Look, we talked about this for the last two months, right? We can't know ourselves by ourselves. And the same thing is true about even our vocations to some degree. Not that it means that we can't know it at all, but we need other people to help us connect the dots. We need other people filled with the Spirit who are listening to God with us to help us see what God is showing us in his knowledge of us. Basically, here's how it kind of looks, just real quick. And this is paraphrasing Nietzsche, by the way. It says, we let the searching soul survey its own life with others. This is what we do in the giftedness deal. We let the searching soul survey its own life with others. And with a view to the following question, what have you truly loved thus far? Again, now what are you good at? What are your skills? But what have you loved thus far? What has ever uplifted your soul as you look back on your life? What are the moments and times when your soul was uplifted? When, when something dominated and delighted your soul at the same time? You assemble these in reverse order, starting at the early age into now. And perhaps they will reveal what God's eyes saw and wrote in the secret places and unformed substance. That's the whole idea behind the gift of this discovery. Is that we look at what we truly love, what motivates us, how we've walked in that. Again, again, if we believe that our call within a call isn't something that we just make up or something that we just discover on our own, but is enmeshed in the secret places and the intricate places for, that we are formed in, then we have to be able to look back and trace how the different times in our lives, those, those, that call has kind of made itself, brought itself, or that flame has been sparked. So that we can keep kindling it. Keep rekindling it. Keep, help us see with clarity. Because listen, life around us, whether it's because of age or maturity, culture or context, we tend to, to, to push those things down, right? Because of hurts, because of all kinds of things, there's reasons we snuff out those, those passions, right? Even accidentally. But this is what we were made for. Because discovering vocation, at least for the most, is more like rediscovering, reawakening, or recommitting Choosing again what was chosen before. But it's not done primarily through inactivity, through just, just like, okay, let me take this deal. If I do this, I know at the end of the giftedness discovery workshop that I'm going to have my vocation. That's not what we're promising. That's not how it works. Again, we're on a journey together. We can help each other on that journey, and that's what the giftedness discovery thing can do. But, but learn, reawaken, unearthing our vocation also comes through being responsible in life today. Fundamentally, we believe that what we seek in our vocation is not something we create, but something for which we were created, right? 
It is a discovery not achieved, but received. Not something new, but something known. Something passed down, inherited. And the way we receive such knowledge is through living our faith. Letting our faith lead us to live responsibly for what is already known to us. That's what Roy read for us in Psalm 37, 3 through 6. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Already, right now, your call today, trust in the Lord and do good. Right now, already, you've been created, you've been given everything you need in the trust of the Lord and the love of the Lord and the knowledge of the Lord to do good. Dwell in the land. Dwell, live. Just live. Live in the place that, God's, that God has you right now. It's not, listen, your, your vocation isn't way over there, way out there, way off into the future. It's here. It's now. And the way you unearth it is by living here and now, by befriending faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. And what is the faithfulness, what is God faithful to? To know us, to be with us, to shape us, to guide us, to lead us, to form us, to lead us into what he's made for us and the fullness of what he's made for us. Not just for us, but for the good of all those around us and everything that he's doing. Right? Befriend that. Live in that. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you what? He will give you what? What does the psalm say? He will give you the desires of your heart, the thing that sparks your heart. He'll give it to you. Why? Because you're actually living already in what you are. It's pretty incredible. It's really simple and yet complex because we're, we're sinners and broken and have all kinds of other voices that tell us to do all kinds of other things, right? And so the psalmist says, and this is what we do regularly, almost every time we get together, commit your way to the Lord. Commit your life to being led by the Spirit being filled with the Spirit, to knowing yourself through, what God, through God's knowledge of you. Commit your way to the Lord. Every time we come into this place, isn't that what we do? We set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus so we might follow Jesus as Jesus follows out of this place, right? As the church outside of this, right? We commit our way to the Lord every time we come together. Trust in Him. The He'll act. The He'll bring forth what? Your righteousness. Isn't that what... Isn't that what we talked about? Isn't that what we're called to? To living rightly? He'll bring forth the right way of living is as the light. He'll bring forth what it is that righteousness looks like for us. How we've been designed to live rightly with him and with others in this particular time and place for the good as the light of day. Now you've probably noticed that when discussing vocation, I mentioned desires and motives, love and all, more than skills, talents, and abilities. That's because our call within a call that helps us identify ourselves has more to do with what we want and desire and are interested in than what we're good at. And listen, that's hard for me to believe. I, am, I did not grow up thinking that. I've grown up thinking, and not because I've been taught this, just, just the, the, my own, the way I'm wired, right? Like I've grown up in the way I think about things is like desire is a negative thing. And then my heart's wicked and broken and twisted. And that's true. My heart is wicked. My heart is broken at times. It is twisted. Certainly, I know that, right? But that if I wanted it, it must not be from God. But our scriptures tell a completely different story. Our scriptures tell a story that if we really want it, and we're willing to, like the psalmist said, to submit it to God, to let him search it and know it, examine it, reveal to us what's broken and twisted and off, what's, not, what's shallow and not deep. 
If we're willing to, then what that desire actually has given us, if we get down to the depths of it, is actually from him. It was made by him. It was sparked by him. It's his spark. And that I should, I should be called by the things that I desire. Again, it requires some work, right? It can't just be the surface level. We live and we're, we're, all, we're all twisted and broken in our own desires, right? But if we do the, the work of getting to the depth of them, we discover the place where our vocation is birthed. The crucial terrain to be explored in any vocation search, says David Brooks, is the terrain of your heart and soul, your long-term motivation. Listen, knowledge is plentiful. I know what to do. I feel like I know what to do, right? Do all these things, do, don't do all these things, all that kind of stuff. But motivation is scarce. Knowledge is plentiful. Motivation is scarce. Listen, our desires have layers. Again, what's on the surface, says Dallas Willard, is not always the desire which is meant to drive us, to satisfy us. Though if we're free enough in faith to press down into our desires, if we're friends of faith, feeding on faithfulness, we find safe pasture for our desires to live responsibly in what we already know and love. Listen, like again, all of, not all our desires are super deep. We, uh, this week, Deidre's car has been in the shop and, uh, and the, 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 the shop gave us a, uh, a loaner that happened to be a big pickup truck. And so, um, and so Deidre has graciously let me drive the truck this week and she's joking that I'm not trying to get the car fixed fast enough because um, um, I like driving the truck. I, I, li- I want a truck. I, I desire a truck, right? And that's not a, is that a bad desire? Is that a bad thing to desire a truck? No, no, right? But if that desire, if the if that desire leads me to act in a certain way where I make my all my efforts in life, all the other relationships and responsibilities in my life orient around me getting that truck. And if I don't get that truck, I won't be happy or 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 will, or will be less than than completely myself, then I've probably I've probably made that desire something twisted, right? But the desire itself's not bad. Like I like wanting a truck is neither here nor there. It's just I like trucks. Like I'm taller. It's easier to get into. Whatever. Um, it's just it's nice to be high on the road in Dallas because it's dangerous. Um, you know all those kind of things, right? Well, the same is true for for all of our desires to some degree. Like we all have things that we desire, and there's different levels of 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 if that desire is something that's deep and meant to be something we give ourselves to, or if that desire is just like my desire for my truck. It's a good desire. But it's not the desire, the desire, right? It's not the thing that I'm made to. I'm not made to drive a Ford F-150. Like, despite what the commercials tell, tell you, right? Like, that's not what you're made for. Um, and so, but I am made for something. I am made to give myself to something and commit to myself to something. But, but that call, first that something, is a call from something deep. The scriptures, the scriptures if, maybe you've heard this in the Psalms, that, the, the, that there is a call from deep to deep. And that's what really vocation is. It's a call from the depths of you, but from the depths of God in you. God with you. From the depths of God himself. That's really what we're after. Because listen, Thomas Merton says it this way, so let me just read it. He says, The true interests of a person are at once perfectly his or her own and common to the whole kingdom of God. The interests, the things you're interested in, the things that pique your desires, Right? That is because these interests are all created in God's design, designs for his soul, for our soul. 
The destiny of each of us is intended by the Lord to enter into the destiny of the entire kingdom. And the more perfectly we are ourselves, the more we are able to contribute to the good of the whole. The more perfectly we are ourselves, the more fully and wholly we are ourselves, the more we're able to contribute to the good of the whole. Again, nothing ever just terminates on me. But me being full and whole leads to whole and fullness for everyone, right? And the way that I discover the full and wholeness of everyone, of, of me, is being one who contributes to the good and the fullness of the whole. This is the way the world works. This is how we've been created. When we, think, when we understand, we, like, when we're graced with a clear-sighted prudence of this, we're rooted in a deep devotion to divine providence, a devotion that abandons our limited plans into the hands of God and seeks only to enter into the invisible work that builds the kingdom. Faithful submission to God's secret working in the world. This is what our first call is, right? Like we abandon ourselves to what God wants, to building up his kingdom. But listen, our vocation is not a supernatural lottery, but the inheritance of two freedoms, the interaction of two freedoms, and therefore of two loves. It is hopeless to try and settle the problem of vocation outside of the context of friendship and love. It's impossible to try and answer the problem of vocation outside the context of friendship and love. Because again, if vocation was God's called you to, vocation always takes place in the context of relationship, in the context of the land. To be a person of the land, called to be at home in a particular time and place and history with a particular people. Always. Always. We seek providence, says Merton, but that's a philosophical term. We seek sovereignty. We seek God's, God's will. That's a philosophical term. The Bible speaks of a father in heaven. Providence is consequently more than an institution, more than an idea, more than a doctrine. It is a person. And isn't that what Psalm 139 has taught us? That he knows us. That he walks with us. He knows our gait. He knows our thoughts. He knows us. He can. He can. He knows us so well. He knows us better than ourselves. He knows our insides as well as our outsides. He knows everything that's formed for us in which we are created. That's what we abandon ourselves to, not just simply to the providence of God, that I'm made for something generally, that I'm made for something in this kind of weird mechanical way, like off of a like off of some sort of conveyor belt, but I'm made by. One, a father who knows me, who has formed me and shaped me, who's seen all the intricate and hidden things within me and how they fit within his hidden things of his kingdom. More than a benevolent stranger, he is our father. Even the term father is too loose a metaphor, says um, Morton, um, to contain all the depths of mystery, for he loves us more than we love ourselves, as if we were himself. He loves us, moreover, with our own wills, our own decisions, our own desires. He who is infinitely other from us nevertheless dwells in our souls, watches over every moment of our life with such a love as if we were his own, we were his own self. If we are to love God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves, or as Jesus would say, love others as he has loved us, then it's safe to say that God loves us as much as he loves himself, which is crazy and almost feels blasphemous, if I'm honest. But he seems to act like it's true. He sent his son to die for us. 
His love is at work bringing good out of all of our mistakes and defeating even our sins. So if you really want to make a wise vocation decision, you have to lead the kind of life that keeps your heart and soul awake every day. That's what David Brooks says. There are some activities that cover the heart and soul. I think we can probably name a few of those, right? There are certain ways of living that cover the heart and soul. But that's why the psalmist said in Psalm 37, do good, dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness. Those are the kind of things that keeps the soul awake and alive, that keeps the desires there so that the Lord might give them to you. There are some that awaken the heart and engage the soul, just as there's some that cover it. The people who make the wisest vocation decisions are the people who live their lives every day with their desires awake and alive. They are ones that see their desires. Listen to this. They see their desires. And again, I'm saying this as one who, who feels like I'm still growing in this, all right? So this is as much of an invitation to help me walk through this as it is an encouragement for you to walk through it. They are the ones that see their desires. They recognize the interests, the things that spark their heart, the things that quicken their heart, the disquieting thoughts of Psalm 139, right? They confront those desires. They're willing to engage the Lord with those desires, to be confronted by the Lord in those desires. And then, therefore, are ones who understand what they truly yearn for, that do the work to get to the depth of their desires. Those who answer the vocation, the call of vocation, who unearth it the best are the ones who see their desires, confront their desires, understand what they truly yearn for. I've talked way too much today. So we're not going to have time to go into a lengthy um, practice. But just so you know, it will be up on the website and on your app. A way, just like we've done in, with all these other kind of topics to the examine, a way for you individually or collectively to sit in this idea of going, letting um, deep call to deep, going into the depths of your desires. But the way I want us to end our time this evening, um, before you fall asleep, is I want to read Psalm 139, 9 through 12 over you. And then I'm just going to leave a couple of questions up on the screen. For about three minutes, I just want you to sit in these questions. Let the Holy Spirit lead you into these questions. Don't, like, try to answer them, but, but, like, let yourself just be ones who freely enter into and safe, find safe pasture in answering some questions about the things that you long for. Letting yourself be okay to start on the surface if you need to. If the, if the answer to the question feels really shallow, that's all right. Just keep listening, keep pressing, keep letting it come to the surface and asking the Lord to keep taking you deeper into the things that are true. Make sense? Okay, let me do this. Let me read Psalm 139, 9 through 12, and I want to pray for you, and you can, you can sit quietly in these questions. Psalmist says, if, you, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if, if I awake and am moved by every wave and wind of emotion, every wave and wind of circumstance, every wave and wind of interest and desire. Even there, your hand shall lead me. And your right hand, your hand of authority, your power, your hand that formed me, shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me be night. If I say that my desires, what I want, are so hidden or are so dark that I cannot see them. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. The darkness is as light as you. Father, I thank you that you know us and that whether we feel in this moment tossed around by life, not sure of what we really want. Lord, you have led us every step of the way. Your hand is with us, holding us, even in what feels like chaos. Father, I thank you that if we're afraid of what we want, and maybe rightly so, even what seems dark and twisted and can't be from you, even there, Father, you Lord, you know what is true and good. So help us, Father. Says Dylan encouraged us last week to be open to you. And for these next few moments, Lord, let us answer these questions, begin to answer these questions with the freedom of ones who are desperately loved as much as they are intimately and intricately formed. In your son's name we pray, amen.
I know that's um, it's not enough time to really do much of anything. But my hope is, even just with a couple minutes, to at least begin to spark in us something that we can keep conversations going outside of this time and place, right? To give us a chance to sit and to rest in what the psalm has really allowed us to be in for a while now. Um, the knowledge of God and who He's made us to be and what He longs for us to be. But again, the psalmist tells us that when we come into a place like this, all we're doing is committing our way to the Lord again, over and over again. As one pastor wrote, he said, we're not so much to make spiritual progress each week. Oh, that's what I really long for, right? Like, maybe that's the way we design these things, maybe a little too much. No, that's wonderful when it happens, right? I would love for you to walk away with knowing your vocation. That would be awesome. But really, it's just a baby step. Really, if anything, like, we're just coming back to what's always been true. As this pastor writes, rather, we mostly come for the consistency of things. For it remains the same from week to week. The comfort of the liturgy, the songs and the prayers and scriptures, the solace of the music, Chaz always does such a tremendous job. The reassuring sight of familiar faces, those who know us and love us, who welcome us. And the enduring presence of ancient rites and timeless symbols of remembering God's body broken for us in Jesus. Jesus' life poured out for us as a sign of a new covenant that his life will be our life and that our life will be lived to the fullness in him. We're here to remind ourselves of the values that unite us and commitments that keep us heading in the right direction. If anything, I hope that's true tonight. That we're here once again to choose again what we chose before. And so if you would, please do this. Will you stand with me? And Chaz is going to come up again to play. As he plays, come and grab the communion elements yourself. And whenever you feel ready, grab and receive. Choose again what you chose before as a commitment to what God's called you to, to who God's called you to be, and to how God's called you to live that life through the life of Jesus Christ.